Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm still woe. Today's Stone Choir will be a continuation of last week's series that we began on the subject of the Jews in history. First episode was covering the entirety of Scripture. This week we're going to be picking up pretty much where we left off with the destruction of the Temple. And we're probably going to get through the Middle Ages today. We'll see. Uh, there's This is going to be an extremely cursory look. We're not trying to give an exhaustive history of the Jews as a people. I think there are three main points that we want to make here today, and we're going to you know, present evidence to this effect. The first is that the Jews were effectively destroyed when the temple was destroyed. When they called down God's curse against them, it worked. They were scattered to the winds. They were just a people without anything, without a homeland. They lost their language. They abandoned their religion uh, by abandoning God and pursuing false gods, which we'll get into a little bit here today. The second thing to get across is that the examples that we give are going to have two main themes. One, the Jews post Senka Temple destruction were frequently concealing what they were actually doing. There was subterfuge, there was secret symbolism, there were secret plans and then public pronouncements that were at odds with each other. And so a lot of the history of the Jews post-Second Temple has to do with someone else finding out what they're up to and getting upset about it for you know good or bad reasons. You can decide for yourself. We're going to present a bit of that history. And then the third one is, is basically they were just frequently up to no good. Uh, to give just a brief recap of the up to no good to which they were attempting, I'm going to give a just a brief highlight reel from past Stone Choir episodes. Today's episode is number 35, so we've got 34 episodes behind us. In 12 separate episodes, the Jews have come up, not because Corey and I are racist anti-Semites who just hate people, but because when you're looking at theological concepts and problems facing Christendom, a certain group keeps popping up. I didn't do that. Corey didn't do that. We find over and over that the Jews show up when there are problems in Christendom. So first in episode three on Christian nationalism, we mentioned for this first time that the slave ships that came from Africa to North America were overwhelmingly owned by Jews. The slave markets were owned almost exclusively, I believe, by Jews. The slave markets all closed on the Sabbath. Pretty weird if, you know, it's white guys. And then the majority or the almost majority of owners of slaves in the South were themselves Jews. So whatever you think about the horrors of slavery in antebellum South has something to do with those people. You can't disentangle it too. That's a big deal because today we get America gets blamed for slavery. Whites get blamed for slavery. If you're going to be assigning blame today for slavery— Let's make sure we don't leave out the people who actually precipitated it. Episode five, a man, a name no man knows. We mentioned that, you know, pseudonymity and in, in changing names is there's nothing inherently wrong with it. I wrote a list of names of mainly Jewish entertainers who changed their names from extremely Jewish names to extremely Anglo sounding names so that they blend in. So that people would forget that they were Jews and they would just be, you know, Americans. Good or bad, I don't care. Like it, it doesn't upset me, but I think it's just interesting that that sort of shape shifting has long roots, which we'll be getting into today. In episode eight, we discussed in neglected matters uh, 
we covered five issues, and two of them touched directly on Jews. Uh, the first was usury, and we mentioned how from the time of Moses, usury was banned among believers in God. Charging of interest was a crime. And it wasn't until the Middle Ages when princes and kings began seeing the desirability of borrowing money or having lending made available, principally for prosecuting wars, that they began letting Jews commit usury. It was still forbidden for Christians, it was still a crime for Christians, but Jews were permitted to do so, with the specific thinking that, well, they're going to hell anyway, so let's get some upside from lending, because there are upsides to lending at interest. There are downsides, it's sin, but there are certainly upsides, and that's often the case with sin. It's not all bad, or people wouldn't do it. One of the other issues that we discussed in the Neglected Matters was head coverings in church, and we mentioned the fact that Betty Frieden Goldstein, who founded the National Organization for Women in 1968, set out to do two things immediately. One, legalize abortion, and two, get head coverings burned in out of our churches. And she succeeded in both in short order. So we took Christian doctrine from a Jewish lady in 1968. That's important. And like I said at the beginning, that's not us complaining about the Jews. It's just saying, hey, over and over, we find this same group of people showing up. Maybe there's something that's deeper there. And if someone has a problem with them later on, maybe it's not the person who has a problem with the issue that is the problem. Maybe the fact that a group of people keep doing bad things is something that can at least be discussed. And these are the these are the ground rules for everyone today. You know, pretty much the entire news cycle is a re-examination of European history and assigning blame for things from hundreds and thousands of years ago. If those are the rules, okay. If you can look in history and say, well, this person's responsible for this, this group's responsible for this, sometimes that may be fair. Corey and I have no problem with generational guilt. We have no problem with collective guilt when it is justly applied. So it's perfectly fair game for any group. It just so happens that many of the things that we as Christians are concerned about have Jews at their root. Episode 11, Among the Ashens, we mentioned that Judeo-Christian is a term that was invented in the 20th century. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as Judeo-Christian. Those are opposites. And we made the case that that emerged because the ghettos of Europe were being disgorged on our shores. And suddenly you had this large influx, not in the South, but in the North and really throughout the country of Jews coming from mainly Eastern Europe. And they wanted to assimilate, you know, a lot of the name changing and things. And one of the ways of assimilation was to invent Judeo-Christianity, where suddenly you have this Christian nation of America and all these Jews are showing up. And so they want to say, hey, we're all on the same tomb, team, same God, you know, same morals, same basic values. We're all together, man. Well, here that's true. It's false. We discussed that in episode 11. Episode 14 was pretty much about Jews. Uh, we had uh, some discussion of Karl Popper, Theodore Adorno, and most of it was about Saul Alinsky and his rules for radicals. That was pretty much an, an episode about Satan's playbook, and as it's practiced and exemplified today, it's all Jews doing it. We didn't do that. That's just who showed up. Episode 15 on human race, we discuss in Foundational Matters the fact that Jew is a race. It is not only a religion, and underlying everything is the racial aspect. If you say, if someone says, I don't like Jews, the typical response is, oh, you're a racist. And yet, if someone says, hey, did you know that that guy's a Jew, 
they would say, well, how do you know that? He doesn't wear the hat. He doesn't keep kosher. He doesn't go to Sabbath. Why do you think he's a Jew? He doesn't, he's not, he's Presbyterian. So like, it's, it's an either or thing. It's, it's a, it's a gotcha game where it's racist if you dislike something about Jews, but it's a religion if there's anything good about what they're doing. It's just, it's one of those games that gets played and it leaves us tied up in knots. But Jew is in fact a race. I mean, we made that very clear last episode, just discussing scripture. All the genealogy was about the race of Jews. That's not inherently a bad thing. Everyone has a race. That's how God made us. We don't hate people because of their race, but if there are differences, maybe they're consequential. And we see in time that in fact they are. Episode 19 on human race and racism, we talked about Magnus Hirschfeld, the Jew from Weimar, Germany, who was conducting horrific sexual experiments, transsexual science, so-called pornography, sodomy, the worst imaginable sins that are re-emerging today. When he fled Germany, he immediately went on to write the book Racism. (laughs) He was a Jew. Also appearing in that same episode was the murder of the czars and communism, all of which was run by Jews. So over and over, this group of people shows up in the very worst moments in European history. And we're going to cover some more of those today. Episode 20, Against the Antichrist, we revisit the fact that the Jewish slavers were were relevant. Uh, episode 23 on women and feminism. Well, we didn't explicitly mention Jews, uh, mainly because we didn't want to get too much into second wave feminism or later. The history of feminism in the 20th century is almost entirely Jewish. Just a couple names that most people will probably recognize. Again, Betty Friedan, Nee Goldstein, Gloria Steinem, Gloria Allred, Andrea Dworkin, and Naomi Wolf, all Jewesses. So those are their contributions to feminism. If you think feminism is bad, you should give them credit. If you think it's great, you should also give them credit. When they take credit for what they're doing, who are we to rob them of it? Feminism in the 20th century was entirely a Jewish gift to our civilization, and I think it's important to give them that credit. Episode 27 in listener feedback, episode 1, uh, we finished with Israel Zangwill's The Melting Pot play, which was a play that was basically dedicated both to race mixing and to the newly invented concept that America itself isn't a nation. It doesn't have any particular bloodline. It's just this big cauldron where people from all around the world get dumped in. And then, I don't know what emerges, you know, as Corey finished up, it sounded pretty hellish to us. That if you've ever said melting pot, you're quoting a man named Israel. So make sure you give him credit. Episode 30, Against the Quark Universe, we discussed, uh, Corey mentioned the Jewish law school professor, Eugene Rostow, who declared that ceremonial deism was the official United States religion. And he's spot on. I mean, that goes back centuries. And episode 23, most recently, on Michael King, the Marxist agitator. I joked that most of the names in that read like the Tel Aviv phone book, uh, beginning with Stanley Levison, his lifelong handler. Pretty much everyone who influenced him and was moving the Marxist needle in civil rights in the 60s in America, they were almost all Jews, not exclusively. But in the absence of that people group, the civil rights movement wouldn't have existed. So again, that's relevant. It's not, er, we're mad at these people. It's, I don't like evil. And if I think something is evil, and then I look at the genealogy of the man who's doing the thing, and I keep finding the same pattern, at some point it's going to draw my attention. You know, 
five, six, seven years ago, I didn't care. I basically didn't know what a Jew was. I was completely indifferent. I had a bunch of Jewish friends. I had good friends with a number of them. I had great conversations. It is not hatred to say, huh, over and over, I keep seeing this pattern. That's just intelligence. That's honesty. So today we're going to be having an honest assessment of the truth of some more aspects of history post-Second Temple destruction, beginning with the destruction of the temple itself, and then some of the things that happened after that. And so we'll start with the first of three Roman Jewish wars, so-called. And really this is the one of the major Jewish revolts against the Roman Empire. And that is the one that is eventually put down by Vespasian and Titus. And that is when the temple is burned in 70 AD. So basically what happens in this revolt is the Jews start a major uprising as was their want. We see that in the pages of scripture. That is why Pilate has such a difficult time dealing with them and tries to be so careful because these people were known for constantly causing trouble for the empire. But they instigate a revolt and the result of that is that it gets squashed by the Romans fairly conclusively. In this particular revolt, the Romans do lose a fair number of soldiers. It's 10,000 plus, according to Roman records, which is nothing compared to the third Roman-Jewish war, which we'll get to. And the Jews lose something on the order of probably about 20,000. And then there's some number of civilians who were killed as well. That's harder to estimate. But the major point, of course, is, as was stated, the temple is burned. It is sacked and burned. It is destroyed completely, utterly. Because, of course, you should think of the words of Christ when you hear that the temple was destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing on another. And that's what the Romans do. The Romans loot the temple and destroy it. It is gone. This is God's judgment on the Jews taking physical form. The temple is gone. The place where they went to, at some points in their history, worship God, at other points in their history, to worship idols because they contaminated the temple with idols frequently. But it's now gone. Because, of course, that's not how you're supposed to worship God. You don't worship God at the temple. You worship God by being a Christian, by believing in Christ. But to move on to the, the second of these three Roman-Jewish wars. The second one is often called the Kitas War, named after one of the gentlemen involved. This one has a much higher count when it comes to the death toll, and the reason for that isn't actually due to the conflict itself. I don't remember exactly how many died in the conflict. I think the records disagree on that, but it was the number of soldiers killed wasn't enormous. However, the Jews started uprisings in various places in the Roman Empire simultaneously because the Romans were dealing with other things in some of the fringe part of the, parts of the empire. And so the Jews seized the opportunity. They instigated an uprising in Egypt, in Cyprus, in Libya, and of course in Israel, in Judea. What is notable about this particular conflict is that in Cyrene and Cyprus alone, because we have records for that from Cassius Dio, a Roman historian, 
460,000 or more Roman subjects were murdered, civilians murdered, by the Jews. That would have been primarily Romanized Greeks, of course, because of the location. Now, as a Christian, that should make you think. Because look at the timeline here. 70 AD is the first conflict when the temple is destroyed. That's sort of the conclusion of that conflict. It takes them a few years to clean up some rebels out in the fringes. This conflict is some years later, between the years of 115 and 117. Many of these Roman Greeks who were murdered by the Jews would have been Christian at this point. This was in part Jews waging a pogrom against Christians. And the numbers I gave you are the ones that we know from Cyrene and Cyprus alone. I told you some of the other places they had the uprising. We don't know the death toll in Egypt, Libya, or other places in the eastern Mediterranean. It may very well have been excess of a million Roman subjects who were murdered in this uprising. It's interesting that they would start all these revolts all over the place all at once because we saw exactly the same thing in the 19th and again in the 20th centuries. The, the wave of revolutions in 1848 and then the wave of communist revolutions in the 19-teens, same people. It was the same pattern, killing Christians en masse, mass revolution, mass chaos, same coordinators. So when we talk about Satan's playbook, we're not just like, how many times do you have to see the same pattern before you recognize it's a pattern? And you don't necessarily need to immediately jump to a conclusion, but when it's the same people doing the same thing, take that seriously. The slaughter of Christians in the 20th century is mirrored in the 2nd century. That should matter to us as Christians. I guess I should mention a bit of historical irony, as it were, after the first of these three conflicts, because obviously Jerusalem was largely destroyed, the Jews shifted their center of power and focus, their leadership, to Galilee, of all places. There's just a little bit of historical irony in the fact that they had to go there. But the results of the Second Roman-Jewish War, of course, again, victory for the Romans, they eventually did crush the Jewish rebellion. They killed many of the rebels, some number of hundreds of thousands dead, probably 200,000 dead, plus civilians. Difficult to count the number of civilians. The Jews weren't taking a census in the way the Romans were, so the Romans had better numbers. But eventually, they pushed them back to the city of Lydda, laid siege to that city, and destroyed the rebels and their leadership. The reason the city is worth mentioning is because the slain of Lydda is a phrase that is used in the Talmud as these are people who are praised in the Talmud for what they did. The Jews are proud of what they did in this rebellion of the hundreds of thousands of the potentially million that they slaughtered. But the last of the conflicts, and perhaps the most important of these, other than obviously the temple being destroyed in the first one, is the third Roman-Jewish War, or the Third Jewish Revolt, usually called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, because it was led by Simon Bar Kokhba, Simon son of Kokhba. That was in the years 132 through 136. So this was not necessarily a short conflict, this lasted a while, particularly the final siege that was when the Romans 
annihilated these rebels because, again, the Romans did win this one. However, this came at a serious cost to the Romans. It is estimated that the Romans lost, I believe it was at least 200,000 soldiers. It's difficult to tell because it's not exactly clear historically all of the legions that were present in Judea for this particular conflict. However, some number of tens of thousands, up to 200,000 Roman soldiers died in this. And between 200,000 and 400,000 Jewish militia, or whatever you want to call them, died in this. And then some number of thousands of the rebels directly under Bar Kokhba. However, the major outcome of this was the final destruction of the Jewish people in what is at the time Palestine. Because earlier, as a result of that second conflict, Hadrian had imposed a number of punitive measures on the Jewish people, basically because of their bad behavior and the fact that they kept revolting and causing problems for the empire. But this third one, the Bar Kokhba revolt, basically the Romans razed Judea. They destroyed the fortified towns, they burned villages to the ground, they killed probably a half million or so Jews. They were done with the Jewish people, done having to deal with these conflicts and every, you know, handful of decades having to send legions over to this province that's on the periphery of the Roman Empire that just constantly causes them so many problems. And not just on the periphery, because of course, they were instigating rebellions in other parts of the empire as well. I should expand on what Hadrian does here, because in the, the aftermath of this revolt, this is where the real onerous measures come for the Jews, the ones who weren't dead. They were completely banned from Jerusalem. They were allowed their one day per year, their Tisha B'Av day, which is basically their annual day of whining about things that they have suffered because of things that they have done. But the reason it's notable what happens here in this particular conflict and what Hadrian does is because this is the real beginning of the modern Jewish diaspora. This is when the surviving Jews flee to various other places, in large part to Babylon, which becomes very relevant for other reasons. Now, of course, the, the Jews did also in this conflict murder basically any Christians they could find because the Christians had refused to fight against the Romans because the Christians weren't trying to wage a rebellion against the Roman Empire. That was the Jews. So the Jews murdered a number of Christians in this as well. We'll probably never know that number. But this is also when, as a punishment, essentially the Romans set about to erase Judea from history. Not only did they destroy the towns and the fortifications and a great deal of the population, this is when Hadrian renamed the province from Judea to Palestine. That's why we have that term for the modern area, because of the consequences, the aftermath of this rebellion. One of the interesting aspects of the rebellion itself was that along with the warfare, one of the cultural things that they were trying to do was to restore the Hebrew language. They, you know, they'd been speaking Aramaic and Greek. They actually had a brief period of time where they tried to repristinate the Hebrew language, and that was an important part of their identity. They wanted 
self-rule. They wanted, you know, the temple back, and they wanted their ancestral language, which is something we see today. You know, that, that same desire was there in 135 that we have today. It's not nearly a bad desire, but I think it's just interesting that this was the beginning of them basically trying to undo nearly a thousand years of God's punishment against them. Um, did you want to read the the Titus quote from the first rebellion? Yes, I think we should definitely include that Titus quote because it is one of the best quotes in all of history. As is customary in the Roman Empire, when Titus returns victorious from conquering the Jews in that first revolt, it had started under his father Vespasian, but then because of happenings in Rome, Vespasian had returned to Rome the year before the revolt ended because Nero had committed suicide or forced his guard to kill him, whichever way that actually went. And so Vespasian went back to take over as emperor, essentially. But when Titus returned, he was offered the, the wreath of victory, which is how they did things at the time, and he refused it. And his quote was, there is no merit in vanquishing a people forsaken by their own God. He considered himself to be an instrument of divine wrath against the Jews, and that is certainly true. But that is just one of the, the best preserved quotes in history. And on the point of the Hebrew language, Hadrian actually banned its use. He set about to erase what little of it was left. I think one of the interesting parts about the beginning of the diaspora here is that as they moved into Babylon, because of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the priestly class, they shifted to a rabbinical school of Judaism. Basically, the Pharisees sort of continued on as rabbis in terms of the, the type of teaching that was done. And this was the beginning of them shifting from the oral traditions to writing those traditions down. The Mishnah, the, the oral traditions, had been passed down. They claimed from Moses' day. They claimed that God had given Moses an oral Torah, an oral law, as well as the written one. And that was a key part of their control of the religion because they were contradictory. What was written down was from God. And then the oral tradition, the tradition that was secretly passed on among rabbis and then taught to the people as it was doled out, contradicted scripture. And this is one of the chief battles that Jesus had with the Pharisees, was that many of them, the ones who were not faithful, there, there were a few faithful Pharisees, or they, you know, at least they were believers. The rest of them were engaging in anti-scriptural behaviors and teachings as a matter of lifestyle. That was, that was the Pharisaical mode. And so when it shifted over to rabbinical Judaism, one of the things they did, because the central locus of the temple had been lost, was they started writing stuff down. And so this is the period where we have the two Talmuds can emerge and then converge, basically writing down those oral traditions as, they, as they'd been passed down. And it's a huge set. It's like 25 or 30 volumes of stuff. And it's funny when you, I've heard a couple of rabbis discussing it, and they say, I yeah, know when almost no one's ever read it all. <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of goofy for, for their holy works, but because they're basically signing statements, reinterpreting whatever God said, for them, the important part is the arguing. And so it was a big shift for them to actually write any of that down. 
and that's another thing that we we touched on briefly last week. They'd stopped speaking Hebrew, and despite the efforts in the the Third Revolt, Hebrew didn't come back. So when the Talmud was written down, it was written in, in Aramaic. Hebrew was gone. So when you hear about a Talmudic scholar, the Talmuds will look like they're written in Hebrew. They're not. It's literally Aramaic that they're reading. Yeah, full set of the English Talmud is 73 volumes and $3,000. And a lot of pages. I remember it's like 6,500. It's a lot of pages in the English. Well, but the in the question is how much of that is profit margin? <laughs> uh, given this is a Jewish-owned shop, but in between the well, the end of these Roman Jewish conflicts, because Rome's power is starting to wane at this point, and this is when you have the the dissolution of the empire into the western and the eastern. So you have the Byzantines. The Byzantines obviously will have control over Jerusalem for a period of time until they lose that to the invading Islamic forces in a number of centuries. But in between the Roman suppression of these revolts and really things that'll happen later on, we have an attempt by Julian the Apostate to rebuild the temple. Because of course now the temple has been destroyed twice. You have the first temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, that is in 586 BC. And then you have, as was just mentioned, the second temple destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. However, Julian the Apostate, who actually follows a number of faithful Christian rulers in the Byzantine Empire, he's not a Christian. That's why he's Julian the Apostate. He attempts to resurrect paganism. And so part of that, he attempts to rebuild the temple. However, when the Jews, obviously eager to rebuild the temple, set about doing this task, they are met with basically complete destruction and signs from God. There is an earthquake, fire comes out of the ground and burns up workers, and they really don't get anywhere. But God makes it very clear he does not want the temple to be reconstructed. That is not something Christians most certainly should support. That is something Christians should oppose. And so the people who are sending money over to Israel to build a third temple, that is incredibly wicked. Maybe we'll see fire from the ground again or from the sky this time. We will have a link in the show notes to some firsthand and secondhand depictions from the, that time period of accounts of what happened there. Uh, the details vary slightly, but the overall theme is the same and unmistakable. There is a supernatural force preventing them from rebuilding the temple, and it included fireballs. Like we're, we say supernatural, we're not talking about tummy aches. Men were incinerated from the ground by fire. That's not normal. Well, it's a little more normal when you worship Satan. <laughs> to move on to Babylon, that's really the next major point in this journey. Of course, you have the Babylonian captivity of Israel, not of the church. That's a different matter. That book is worth reading. Incidentally, that's written by Luther. But the Babylonian captivity of Israel is 597 BC is when that starts. And so that is when you really get the beginning of the Jewish diaspora population in Babylon. And this, of course, is the southern kingdom, Judah, because the Assyrians were the ones that took the northern kingdom captive earlier on. But you wind up with a population of 
between 1 and 2 million Jews living in Babylon, which essentially modern-day Iraq. This is when the Talmud really begins to take form. And as was mentioned, you have a, a split here because you have the Jewish population, what remains of it, in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. They produce what comes to be known as the Jerusalem Talmud. But then you have the Babylonian Talmud, which obviously produced in Babylon. This is where the Jewish schools that we still have today, and they are largely in the U.S. and Israel, this is where they take off the, the yeshiva. These are schools devoted to the study of the Talmud. And they start here in Babylon, and they spread to many other places over time. Wherever the center of Jewish power is at the time, that's where you'll find the yeshiva. And as I mentioned, today, if you are looking at where the yeshiva are concentrated, they are concentrated in Israel and in the U.S. But to give some historical context here, originally, when the Jews are taken captive in Babylon, they are taken captive by the Sassanid dynasty, and that is a Zoroastrian dynasty. However, during the period of this diaspora population living in this region, the Muslim conquests come through, and Zoroastrianism is erased. It's gone. However, the Muslims, for four centuries, still permit the Jews to practice their religion, to have their schools, to teach the Talmud, to do all these various things, to participate in society, in banking and coinage and various other things. Really the sorts of things that you would expect. And so perhaps that narrative that you constantly hear of the Jews and the Muslims being arch enemies and hating each other for all time, a little more complicated than most media reports would have you think. Because this is a large Jewish population living under Muslim rulers for centuries. And this isn't the only time we'll see that. We will see this again in Europe with the Muslim Caliphate in Spain. We will see this in the Ottoman Empire. This is not something that is new. It's not something that has ceased. It still happens to this day, despite the conflict between Israel and Palestine. But to go back to the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, because, of course, it's in the Eastern Roman Empire in Jerusalem where the other Talmud, the other version, is taking shape at this point. And really, it's just commentary on the Mishnah that are reduced to writing and then published. In this case, obviously copied by hand. They don't have a printing press back then. But the Eastern Empire, Christendom, really turns against the Jews. In part, the turning point here, the inflection point, is when Chrysostom becomes patriarch of Constantinople. And he has a number of sermons against the Jews. I will link to those in the show notes. They are worth reading. He, he was a good orator. He was a good, a good pastor, a fairly good theologian. Obviously, I would disagree with him on some things, but not as much as one might think, because we'll get this eventually in an Eastern Orthodoxy episode, but what is Eastern Orthodoxy today is very different from what someone like John Chrysostom would have believed basically because of Palamas, but we'll get to that in a future episode. And so Chrysostom becomes patriarch in 398. He has a number of sermons against the Jews. This 
stirs up anti-Jew sentiment among Christians, and obviously some of the other things that have happened historically because the Christians at the time were not ignorant of what the Jews had been doing, so there were other reasons for it as well. But the first emperor who really takes, after Hadrian, that is, of course, who takes anti-Jew measures would be Theodosius. That would be in the 5th century. Now the Jews, even to this day, hate Theodosius, but if you actually look at the measures he enacted, they'll seem fairly reasonable to you. Jews were not allowed to own Christian slaves, because of course there's a religious conflict there, and the Christian emperor did not want Jewish masters having Christian slaves. That's a problem. It also banned intermarriage between Christians and Jews, and Christians were forbidden to convert to Judaism. Those were basically the measures that he enacted, so not particularly burdensome or extensive. We have another attempt here to stamp out completely what remains of the Hebrew language. It's basically dead at this point. The Jews are still in some minor way attempting to resurrect it. And so Emperor Justinian, a short while after Theodosius, bans the use of Hebrew because he's still having trouble in his empire with rebellious Jews. And part of that, if you ban the use of this language, he's trying to make it harder for them to organize these problems that they are causing him. But I mentioned earlier the conquest by the Muslims, and so this moves us into the Islamic period, really. And that more or less begins with the Battle of Yarmouk in 636. That's when the Muslim forces defeat the Byzantine forces, and really that's more or less the end of the hegemony of the Eastern Roman Empire in this region. And so that moves us into the Islamic period. And so Caliph Omar is the man who would wind up with control over Jerusalem in this period. In the Talmud, he is called a friend of Israel. So again, this relationship between the Jews and the Muslims, more complicated than you've probably been led to believe. They are cousins, after all. Scripture is very clear on that. And so Jews worked in his empire, as one of the Arab historians has said, as assayers of coins, sellers of dye, tanners, and bankers, which I am sure are surprising jobs for everyone to hear. But on the topic of what we mentioned earlier, the diaspora, the nature of the diaspora starts to take form in some ways under Caliph Omar and then under his successors as well. Because in the 7th century, the Karaj land tax is passed. And basically that's a tax that is particularly burdensome on non-Muslims who own agricultural or otherwise productive land. And so in order to avoid paying this tax, the Jews move to the cities, because if you don't own productive land, you don't pay the land tax. This is, of course, just an instance of the, the standard, the dhimmi or the, the jizya, the tax on non-believers living in Muslim-controlled lands. But this is the beginning of the concentration of the Jews almost exclusively in the cities. And we will see that pattern repeat over and over again as they move from one place to the next when they are either expelled or there's a new opportunity that opens up. But under 
this caliph and the subsequent ones. This is considered one of the golden ages because the Jews are basically free to do as they please. They're not really burdened other than this tax, but they move into the cities, they avoid the tax. And this persists through about the year 1000. But the center of gravity for the Jewish people shifts from the Middle East, from the Near East, into Spain. Because, of course, you have the Moorish conquest of Spain. And you have, for centuries, Muslims ruling European territory. And so this is considered the real golden age for the Jews in Europe, in Spain. It's important to note that the the ushering in of the Moorish Islamic age of the rule of Spain was brought upon by Jews in uh, you know, Spain, Toledo, uh, the neighboring cities. It was Roman Catholic territory. Uh, I have a, a brief timeline here of some of the things that happened in Toledo and surrounds as related to the Jews who at the time were in a minority because there were some Jews living there in the 500s and 600s. In 558, the bishop ordered the Jews of his diocese to convert to Catholicism, and those who didn't were expelled from the region. In 633, the Fourth Council of Toledo describes the Jews who were allegedly proselytizing their beliefs as the Antichrist ministers. So again, consistent with Christendom, Christian preaching was that these people are evil. That's that's not calling names, that's a doctrinal position supported incidentally by Scripture, and we'll get to that in a couple minutes. Also in 633, the Fourth Council of Toledo declared that all Jews must be baptized, that is, forcibly converted. In 654, the king of Toledo forbade Jews from keeping the Sabbath, forbade their dietary laws, their marriage laws, and forbade circumcision, which again is banning their religion outright. It was illegal, effectively, to practice Judaism. And in 694, the Catholic bishops issued a decree that the Jews were traitors and should have their wealth confiscated and face perpetual slavery, which, as Corey just said, is a significantly worse deal than they were getting from the Muslims, whom we are told are their bitter hereditary enemies. Interesting. Hereditary enemy is a word that Luther later uses, in fact, in the Lutheran uh, confessions, to describe the Muslims. Yet, the hereditary nature of the Jewish Muslim relationship is frequently quite friendly. And this came to a head in 711 when Tariq brought his army to Toledo to try to crush it. They were trying to, to capture Spain for the caliphate. Jewish traders opened the gates of Toledo, let the Muslim soldiers in. So there was no siege. There was no siege of Toledo. There was no battle. There was the gates were open by Jews who were traitors to their town, led in the Muslims, and they conquered it in short order. And basically all of Spain fell not very long thereafter. And that control that Muslims had lasted until the, the 15th century. And not only did the Jews help the Muslims to conquer their Christian rulers, but the Muslims put the Jews in charge of some of these cities. So they were basically left as second-in-command beneath the Muslims, but over the Christians. This was a pattern, as, as Corey said, this is a pattern that played out in multiple places. So when we talked at the beginning about there being you know, malfeasance and, and misconduct by this group, 
there's always this pattern where wherever there are Jews and there are Christians, the Christians end up being harmed somehow, whether it's, you know, soft harm like usury or hard harm like having the gates thrown open so that your enemies can come in and slaughter you. But that pattern is very clear. And Muslims and Jews, in fact, to this day work together. It's Most people don't remember this, but when ISIS was a thing briefly and they were causing trouble, at one point they killed some IDF soldiers and they put out a public apology. They apologized for killing Israeli soldiers, which isn't what you would expect from Muslim terrorists seeking a caliphate. And yet if you understand more of history, it's not quite that weird. And behind the scenes, even today, Saudi Arabia and Israel are very close friends. They are they work together in lockstep. And when you see breakdowns in their relations, it's because one Saudi Arabian, the sheikhs or whoever, when they are ebbing and flowing and they have their internal conflicts, they will sometimes side more or less with Israel than others. But when it comes to them versus Christendom, there's no doubt. They're cousins. And so they have their battles as cousins. But when it comes to dealing with Christians, there's no question who's going to get the knife first. The Middle Eastern proverb really just plays out again and again and again. And everyone should know it by now. They, and they will admit to it. This is their proverb. They know this about themselves. Me against my brother. Me and my brother against my father. Me, my brother, and my father against my uncle. Me, my brother, my father, my uncle against. And it just goes up from there until it's against the world. That is how they view things. That is how they behave. And that is why the Jews and the Muslims will get along to attack Christians. Because they're cousins, but they're not your cousin. And so with the conquest of Spain in 711 through 1031, this is considered one of the golden ages of the Jewish people by the Jewish people. Because as was mentioned, the Muslims basically let them practice their religion, set up their schools, in some cases collect taxes, bank, deal with the money, and oppress Christians. And so this is a golden age for the Jews. It's also incidentally where a bit of that ruthless cosmopolitan nature comes from. Because they're just moving around from city to city as the opportunity opens up. There's no real connection to a specific geographic area. And the reason for that is because God destroyed them in their homeland. He made them into rootless cosmopolitans. He made them into a diaspora people who wander endlessly because they are not at home anywhere, because that is a punishment from God. So we mentioned last week that we would get to the, the Star of David, so-called, this week. Uh, it ties in both to the very beginning of the first century all the way through the, the 10th and 11th century AD. So I think this is a good place to mention because it also ties in with Islam. I'm going to read back from Scripture again. We're going to bounce back to Scripture just a bit. In Acts 7, uh, around 743, Stephen is preaching to the Jews, and he is speaking of Moses here. Moses received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will, be, will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And this is from Amos. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And then a little while later in this sermon, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Almost immediately after saying this, Stephen is murdered. He's martyred by this crowd of Jews to whom he is preaching. So a couple things I want to want to note and then focus on. First, it's notable that if you go back and read Amos 20, about 25 and 26, you'll find some different wording than you find here in Acts. When it says the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, it says something different in Amos, uh, the stars of Kiyun. I don't remember what the tent was. The reason for that difference is that Stephen is quoting the Septuagint. He's quoting the Greek Old Testament. So when you look at the Greek, it says Moloch and Raphan, or Remphan. It's said both ways or translated both ways. The words that appear in this verse in Amos 26 only appear one time in that verse, so we don't have other parallax for it. They're hapax legomena. I think that's interesting because it highlights what we said last week that Hebrew is a dead language. Although you can now look at the Hebrew of Amos today, when Stephen was preaching, he didn't use the Hebrew, he used the Greek. More importantly, note what's going on here. When Stephen is condemning these Jews to their faces, he is telling them that they're idolaters, and specifically that their god was the a star god, the star of their god, Raphan. He's making a direct connection between the idol worship, the Satan worship of the Jews before him, and the Satan worship of the Jews who came out of Egypt. And this passage makes it very clear when you go read it. Go read Acts 7.43 in, in, in that area. Stephen makes very clear that the Jews in Moses' day, they were idolaters. Not 100% of them, but their God. And God turned them over to their God, to the host of heaven. Now, when you hear that and you're not really paying attention, you think, turn them over to worship the host of heaven. Kind of sounds like God. No. He's talking about a star. He's talking about the star god. And so this has to do with the star of David, because there's no such thing. The, that symbol, that hexagram, is called both the star of David and the shield of David. It does not exist in any Judaic practice until 1008 AD. The Leningrad Codex, which is a Tanakh that's preserved in Russia today, is over a thousand years old. It is the first connection between the hexagram and the Jewish or Judaic faith. This is critical because we do have other art from much earlier. We have art from the before the first century, and we have depictions of stars in the first century and second and third century. The stars that they're talking about are not a star of David. They have nothing to do with the Jewish faith, so-called they come from mysticism, specifically from Babylonian mysticism. 
And so the hexagram, which is effectively a, a triangle pointed up and a triangle pointed down, that's notable because it's it's pointing two different directions. It's pointing up and down. That is an allusion to as above, so below, which is a satanic term that's used to this day. Satan worshipers today will use some of these symbols. In fact, they use the hexagram, the so-called Star of David, as one of their symbols. Corey and I debated even talking about this subject because the, the problem with when you start to delve into mysticism and these occult practices, there's a certain type of person who's vulnerable to that, who's weak to that. You know, there's some men where a pretty girl can walk by and they just don't even care. But if some occult, if there's a whip of, of occult information, of occult knowledge, that is tempting. So when we're talking about this, I don't want anyone to be tempted by wanting to delve into these things. So if you're listening and you hear us talking about Babylonian magic and this mysticism, and it gets you excited, take that as a sign that that is a personal spiritual weakness of yours, and just don't go anywhere near it. I'm warning you for the sake of your soul. This is how men, some men are tempted. Some men are completely indifferent. Like, I can look into some of this stuff because it makes my skin crawl, and I look as little as possible, and I learn as little as possible, just enough to be able to identify the basic patterns to say, yeah, that's enemy action. So, we're going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to reference another podcast that goes into a little bit more. We're not recommending that everyone look at this. And if you in particular are enthused about these things, just keep away, please. It's it's not worth it. It doesn't matter. There are much more important things to focus on. The reason for talking about the Star of Raphan as it relates to the so-called Star of David is that there are ancient ties to the Satan worship of the Israelites in Egypt. When you look at this symbol, the hexagram, that the what we call what we think is the Star of David today, it first appears in around the first century, but it has no connection whatsoever to Judaism. The first connections that it has are to alchemy, to Babylonian magic, which ties back to Egyptian magic through the Greeks. It ties to Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, and it also ties to Muslim mysticism. I found that very interesting that both Jewish and Muslim mysticism, most people don't even know that Muslim mysticism exists. It does, and it uses these very symbols. So the Star of David is an occult symbol, and the only place in Scripture that a star appears is directly connected to a star god, a star god from Egypt. We're going to link to an podcast that's defunct now, which is sad is they're really good, uh, called Not Conformed. Uh, they did a four-part series at one point talking about some of the occult and some of the history of some of this evil stuff. We're just going to link to the last episode in that series because it goes the most directly into discussing Babylonian era and Egyptian era magic. I'm going to say something that might surprise some people, but black magic is real. When Pharaoh had his magicians performing magic in front of Moses, they were really doing those things. Now, to say that black magic is real is not to say that these men had power. They had no power. They were demon-possessed. Demons were doing those things. So when we talk about magic, we're talking about supernatural. None of this has anything to do with what any man can do. It's not like if you have certain knowledge, you can gain psychic abilities or the ability to levitate or do any of these things. 
in the event that any sort of supernatural phenomena appears, you're dealing with demons. There's no other way to describe it. And it's clear when Moses is doing battle with the magicians of Pharaoh that he's dealing directly with gods, their gods, their demonic gods. The ten miracles that he does, that each of them is an overthrowing symbolically of one of the gods of the Egyptians, who were demons. All those those physical depictions of them and the descriptions of their habits and their tendencies and their domains, some of that's not going to be true, but some of it is absolutely real. There are demons associated with each of those Egyptian gods. And interestingly, a lot of those pop up in other cultures too. They'll have sometimes similar names, sometimes different names, but it's not simply that they were worshipped in Egypt. The reason that Egypt is so important, the reason that it pops up in the episode that we're going to link to is that as you look at modern-day magic, like people are actually practicing what they believe is real supernatural communion with these deities, these demons, they will trace back through Babylon. They will trace through the Greeks, who, remember, in when Alexander conquered Egypt, the Greeks were then running Egypt. And so much of the scholarship, much of the recordings of Egyptian magic is in Greek, because when the Greeks showed up, they're like, oh, this is great. We, we can have control of these demons now. So today, the men who look back, they look through Babylonia, they look in Greek, back to what the Egyptians were doing 3,500 years ago. It's notable that the Freemasons and other similar secret societies also trace their lineage back to Egypt. Everyone wants roots in Egypt for this stuff. And today, if you're not paying any attention, you don't care. And frankly, most people shouldn't care. I'm not saying be excited about this stuff. Please don't be excited. But if you begin to look at all, and you begin to look at things like the pentagram and the hexagram, you'll find that they're all directly connected to demonic spiritual practices in these ages. And they all trace back to the very time. Like, remember, when, when Stephen is quoting Amos and describing what happened while Moses is up on the mountain, this isn't centuries later, Stephen and, and Amos are specifically describing what happened with the Jews at the base of the mountain when they told Aaron to make that golden calf for them, pointing back to their Egyptian gods, and God condemns them for worshiping their star god of Raphan. That's Egyptian. It's at least that old. We don't know how much older it is. They're demons, so they were created during the six days of creation. But their interaction with the Jews at least goes back to the days of Egypt. And so when we have these evil satanic magic symbols that today are called the Star of David, and they're in some of our churches, and most people think it's just fine. They think it's hunky-dory. It did not exist anywhere as any sort of religious symbol that was not occult until 1008 AD. And then it was on a Tanakh that had been produced by these wicked apostate Jews who had been cursed by God a thousand years earlier. So the Star of David is important as a small microcosm of how we're deceived. And we talked last week about how we were deceived into thinking that Jesus was speaking Hebrew. No. And we're also told that the Star of David is, is this ancient symbol of Israel. You call it the Star of David, like, okay, great, David's, he's a long time ago. That's, that's super Jewish stuff. No, they didn't have it. It did exist 
as a magic symbol for demon summoning. And so when you see flags and you see symbols in our own churches today that have that, it's still demonic. There's not, there's not a good version and a bad version. There is only the evil version because it's an evil symbol, just as the cross is a good symbol. So symbolism is a small thing, but believe me, it matters a great deal to people who are hiding stuff because one of the most important and common things that Satan likes to do is hide this crap in plain sight. There's a little signal somewhere just to whet people's appetite and to signal to people who are in the know that this is what's going on. And these symbols, these occult symbols, are all connected. You are going to find them all throughout ancient mysticism, particularly in this region. Another that you will find constantly is the all-seeing eye. You're going to find that in connection with these other symbols. One in particular still used in this region modernly is the Hamza, which is an all-seeing eye in the palm of a hand. You've probably seen that symbol in various places. It's a favorite of Hollywood and various other questionable entities. But this is also connected to worship of Baal. This is connected to Carthage. You see this all throughout this region. Satan recycles the symbols he uses. There are symbols that represent God. There are symbols that represent Satan. And you are going to see them in any culture that is worshiping Satan. And that is the case with the so-called Star of David, the Star of Remphan. You can have an M in there or not. It's rendered both ways. And the Star of Remphan and the pentagram are essentially interchangeable in many cases in the occult. So it's important to think of that. It's important to recognize that when you see one, it may as well be the other. Sometimes you'll see both together, or you'll see a coin with one on one side and one on the other. But we don't want to dwell on the occult too much. But yes, it does, of course, trace back to Egypt. And to tie that together with Egypt, you have the Eye of Horus, which, of course, is an all-seeing eye. But before getting into the occult, it was mentioned that in Spain, at the, in the period before the Muslim conquest, the Jews were being forced to become Christian or, in some cases, be exiled. Some of the Jews, it is worth noting, committed suicide rather than be baptized. And that ties into the next section in the history of this, which would be the Crusades. Because during the Crusades, there were some pogroms against the Jews. And this was for various reasons, often related to the lending practices of the Jews. Because, of course, those who are in a great deal of debt due to predatory lending practices are not going to think very highly of the lender. And as was mentioned, Christians, there's this additional layer to it, because these were Christians, Christians are not permitted to lend at interest. And yes, I recognize how that is going to sound to anyone living in a capitalist society, which basically means anyone listening to this podcast. I doubt anyone listening is from a society that is not capitalist in its orientation economically. But Christians are not permitted, morally, to charge interest. That's usury. Usury is not excessive interest. Usury is interest, period. And so at this time, this was actually enforced in Christian lands. Christians were not allowed to charge interest. And so if you lent money, you got back the principal, and that was it. 
if you got the principal back. Jews were not subject to this. They weren't Christian. And so as was mentioned, it was, well, they're already going to hell, so why not make it a little worse for them and make money in the process? Of course, that was sin on the part of the Christian leaders. Getting someone else to sin for you is still sin. Yes, that person is sinning, but you're also sinning by proxy and in your own person by encouraging others to sin. You know, temptations will come, but woe to the person by whom they come. And so you have, in the lead-up to the Crusades, as they're organizing these armies in Europe, some of the Jewish populations are purged or expelled. Before we saw in Spain, some of the Jews committed suicide to avoid being baptized. In some of the instances where the Crusaders were dealing with the Jewish population, they would forcibly baptize them. And again, some of the Jews committed suicide rather than be baptized. This is how much they hate God. This is how much they hate Christ. They would rather commit suicide than be baptized. We won't dwell too much on the Crusades because that's not really the, the point of this episode. So we'll move on to the, the Middle Ages, which really is the, the last significant time period before early modern, and then next week we'll get into the modern. But during the Middle Ages, you have an increase in passion plays, and various things like that that depict the Jews in their proper role in the narrative, which is to say as the killers of Christ. And they were depicted often in modern dress instead of traditional dress, because Jews during the Middle Ages in many places had to wear special clothing to note that you were dealing with a Jew. In some places, this took the form of a yellow star. We see that star symbol again. In some places, it took the form of a special hat. They still have special hats today, but they're different from the ones they wore in the Middle Ages. But this, of course, leads to an increase, or at least an increased awareness, at least this increase in anti-Jew sentiment amongst the Christian population, because they start paying more attention to what the Jews are actually doing. And again, they're doing these things that Christians are explicitly forbidden to do, things that these Christians are told are wicked, are sins. They're lending at interest. And you have various controversies with coin shaving and things like that because often they were the ones handling the currency. And so sometimes they were expelled for coin shaving. But this is really when the trope of the Jewish moneylender solidifies itself. Yes, you had it earlier because... They also did money lending in the Byzantine Empire. They dealt with currency in the Roman Empire. You saw Jewish tax collectors. They played the same role in the Islamic Empire for a period of time. But here in Europe, they are the only ones doing it because Christians are forbidden to do it. And so if you had to borrow money, which you probably didn't have to borrow money, but if you are a prince and you want to wage a war and you need to raise an army and you don't have the gold on hand, you go to the Jewish moneylender and he lends you the gold at interest. And so that's where you get the stereotype. Stereotypes, of course, being grounded in reality because they don't come from nowhere. A stereotype would be entirely useless if it weren't based in reality to some degree. It doesn't mean that there's a perfect correspondence between the stereotype and members of the stereotyped group, but there's some correspondence. When Germans are called krauts, okay, yes, we like cabbage. 
We also like sausage and beer. Those are stereotypes, but they're true. The Irish like potatoes. But in fairness, who doesn't? But this is also when we see quite a few expulsions of the Jews from various places in Europe. And you don't just have expulsions from countries. It's important to remember that. Because a number that gets tossed around sometimes is 109 or 110 or 11, depending on how you number things. The number is much higher. Because that's essentially counting the number of times Jews have been kicked out of countries or large areas. But Europe in the Middle Ages wasn't really large countries yet. You didn't have the nation-states that you have today. You didn't have Germany. You had an area full of Germans. You didn't have Germany. You had various cities ruled by princes or electors or counts or margraves. It just depended on the era and where you were. And sometimes these political entities, because that was the highest political entity other than the actual emperor himself, who wasn't dealing with the everyday of any of the cities, really, except for perhaps an imperial city if he happened to be there. But these smaller political entities would expel the Jews. And they would expel them for the things already mentioned. Shenanigans and money lending, oppressive taxation where they were tax collectors, coin shaving, all of the things you expect. However, this is also when stories of child sacrifice and things like that start cropping up in Europe. They've appeared at other points in time in history related to the Jewish people and related to other pagans as well. You see it in the pages of Scripture, where Scripture speaks about them sacrificing their sons and their daughters to the demons. Well, this resumes to some level, to some degree, in Europe. And so you have the depiction, for instance, I cannot remember the the child's name now, the famous saint who's depicted in artwork having been sacrificed by the Jews, recognized as a saint by the church at the time, the pope himself, at this time a better pope than we certainly have today, actually recognized this, the sacrifice of a Christian child to use his blood in the preparation of elements for Jewish ceremony, most likely matzah or something similar. We'll include the, the famous painting in the show notes. I cannot remember the child's name right now. But as I mentioned, you have the, the symbols associated with the Jews where they're set apart. You have the, the yellow star here, which is really when the star becomes solidified as a symbol associated with the Jewish people, this, this six-pointed star. It's also a symbol that they were using themselves. It wasn't merely a, an epithet. It was, yes. it was something they used publicly. So to return to Spain, because Spain, of course, is still, during this period, being ruled by the Muslims, the Muslims were expelled in 1492 in January. You probably remember that year from the rhyme you learned in school. But that gives you an idea of how recently Muslims were ruling a fairly large and important part of Europe. And so they were expelled, and as part of that, Jews were also required to convert because the Jews had been, under the Muslims, permitted to remain Jewish and practice their religion and teach in their schools, study the Talmud, etc. Now that Christian rulers took over that territory again, resumed control over Spain, 
they were not going to tolerate the Jews, partly because the Jews had cooperated with the Muslims, but also because the Jews are pagans. And tolerating a wicked pagan faith is not something that a Christian ruler is supposed to do. And so many of the Jews fled. They went to various other places. Some went back to the Middle East or the Near East. But this is where you see, again, the rootless cosmopolitan nature where they simply flee to the next place where there's an opportunity. This is partly where we begin to see a concentration of the European Jewish population in Poland. And later on, Poland will have the highest Jewish population in Europe. I think it's important to note that the the Spanish nexus to Jewish history is important just because of, among the many tropes that we've discussed here today, you know, they're called tropes, which is kind of a story unto itself. How come something that is true and factual and pattern-based suddenly just sort of becomes, oh, it's just goofy, it's a trope. I don't you know, I mean, it's, that's silly. Why would you say that? The Spanish Inquisition has a pretty bad brand, doesn't it? It's a joke. It's a punchline. And we know it's one of the worst things that's ever happened. But most people don't know the details, starting with the fact that it wasn't the first and only Inquisition. There was an Episcopal Inquisition. There was a Papal Inquisition. Basically, when the Roman Catholic Church needed to stamp out heresies, they began an Inquisition. And so the Spanish Inquisition was in this place and time in Spain where there had been these Spanish-Jewish conversos who were living as Christians. They, they had been Jewish, they had publicly converted to Christianity, and yet there was widespread evidence that many of them were not, in fact, Christian. And so the Spanish Inquisition, you know, that sounds so scary, that was simply looking at particularly the Jews in that place who had claimed to have converted to Christianity to see if they actually had. Were they still in secret practicing their true religion while lying and pretending to be Christians for the benefits that accrued to them? Because you had different social standing, they had different tax status, different political rights. It was easier for you if you're a Christian, because Spain was once again a Christian country. And so it's interesting when you hear Spanish Inquisition, you think one is terrible, and when you hear that they were targeting Jews, you think, well, that must mean they were going after all Jews. No, it was saying, if you claim to be a Christian and your ancestry is Jewish, we want to make sure you're actually Christian. Because the false Christians, they knew from experience, from things like the gates of Toledo, that if you have a group of these Jews in your country pretending to be on your side, at some point there's a very good chance they're going to stab you in the back. And so it was wisdom on the part of the Roman Catholic Church, which a couple of Lutherans saying this, like, we're not fans of these guys in principle, but as a matter of managing a country, you know, it's also a separate question, which of this should be church authority versus state authority. And frankly, that's why they didn't go after the Jews and the Muslims who were practicing openly. This was specifically within the church. That's where the Inquisition had its power. It wasn't principally, even in this case, a political matter. It was one of purifying the church of false converts. And so, yes, again, there was a diaspora from there because some were found out. Like, it, you, you hear the story, oh, they, they were looking for crypto Jews. Did they find any? Yes, they found a lot of them, and a lot more fled. People who had said, oh, yes, I'm Christian. I used to be Jewish, but you know, my family was Jewish. I'm Christian now. As soon as the Spanish Inquisition began, they fled. <laughs> 
why would a Christian leave? That's it's obvious that the Spanish Inquisition worked, which is why it's one of those things that has such a bad brand today. It's a it's something again, it's a punchline. It's a punchline because it was sold to us as a punchline by the people that it was going after. Notably, that took place after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. That was one of the early things that the Christian rulers did after they had reconquered Spain in March of the same year that they actually drove the Muslims out. They issued the edict expelling, notably, practicing Jews. So Jews who had converted, actually converted to Christianity, were not expelled. It was only practicing Jews. They were expelling pagans. They were doing something that is entirely within the rights and, in fact, the duty of a Christian ruler. We will have a link in the show notes to a list of 1,030 expulsions of the Jews from both countries and regions and towns. And there, there are dates and places, and you can see some patterns, you know, in different places. At some point, they're expelled from Germany. Some place points, they were expelled from England. It happened over and over again. And I think one of the, as we mentioned earlier, one of the themes that I, I hope you'll kind of get a sense of is if a particular group of people continually gets expelled by everyone that they encounter, at some point you have to stop wondering why are they persecuting the Jews and start wondering what is it about these people that no one wants to live around them? You know, if you have a kid who gets expelled from 109 schools, at some point you stop wondering if there's a problem with the school and start wondering if maybe there's a problem with the kid. That's why these this pattern is interesting, is that everywhere they went, eventually they wore out their welcome. Particularly, there's no other, like, there are other diaspora populations in history. There are other places where we've had cities and concentrations of a majority race and then a minority race. And by and large, they've coexisted. There have obviously been flare-ups in places, but the only race in human history that it has that's had this particular pattern is the Jews. And so it's okay to say that. It's okay to look and say, I wonder why this historical fact is true. I, I hope that as Corey and I are discussing these subjects in general, you can get the sense that it's possible to talk about facts without hating people. That's one of the tricks that's been played. When something gets categorized as racism and hatred, what does that do? It just means you can't talk about anything. We're just talking about history here. We're talking about historical facts, things that happened in our own homelands. You know, Europe is our homeland, not Spain in particular. I have one Spanish ancestor from the third century, but he was actually, he was a Roman consul who ruled part of Judea at the at the very end of the Roman Empire. I only know that because I think he was one of Charlemagne's ancestors. So if you're Western European, you're descended from that guy too. So you have a, you have a drop of Spanish blood. But the point is that Christians can speak faithfully without engaging in hate, without engaging in slander or desiring unchristian outcomes by talking about historical facts and then looking at the present because the Jews today claim all of this. They claim that these are their people. They claim all of these events and say, yeah, that's us, because they want to subscribe to the persecution, to the eternal victimhood of having been hated everywhere they went and saying, oh, poor us. I believe that most of my life. Like, okay, wow. I mean, some people get a raw deal. I think we all know somebody who just keeps getting kicked. 
it happens sometimes. It's not necessarily that person's fault. But when the preponderance of evidence is so overwhelming, at some point it's okay to just say, what's really going on here? That's why we began in Scripture with this. And as we see, the intersection between Jewish malfeasance and Christian rulers trying to be faithful and ruling their lands is overwhelming. It's the constant pattern. As Corey said earlier, as, as we said, we're talking about the Muslims and the Jews. Whenever there's a Jew in the picture and there's a Christian in the picture, the Christian is going to end up on the short end of the stick. It just, that's what, that's the pattern. We don't have to project into the future and say, all this is always going to happen forever. We can say, wherever these people are, the same thing keeps happening. That's a fact. And it's possible and permissible for a Christian to learn something from that and say, you know what, if the same people keep doing something, maybe I need to look. If we do 35 episodes and a dozen of them point specifically to Jews who've caused horrific problems that were bad enough that we needed to talk about in an episode, that's not us doing a podcast about Jews. That's doing a podcast about Christian issues. And when Jews keep turning up, that becomes a Christian issue. And what we do in response is also a Christian issue. You cannot hate people. You can't despise people. You can't malign people, but you can and must deal with them as they are. And when people to this day dance in the blood of Christ, that's not only a religious matter, but it's also a political matter in the event that you actually have a Christian nation. Obviously, we don't today, and we'll probably get into the history of why that is at some point. But I hope that by presenting these these topics in a calm and polite fashion, we can get across that these forbidden subjects have been forbidden for a reason. Because when you actually tell someone the history of what happened, it completely changes your perspective on the question. And just changing the perspective is the point. I don't want anyone to conclude that I want to go out and hurt a group of people. I don't think that. I don't want others to think that. I do want people to understand that when something keeps happening, we can expect that maybe in the future we should be aware of that. That's all. That's, that's common sense, it's wisdom, and it's, frankly, love for our own neighbors. It's love for our own blood to make sure that these things don't happen to our people. To be clear, because this question will definitely come up if we do not address it right now, you are not permitted as a Christian to hate someone on the basis of race, which is what Wo just said. However, you are required as a Christian to hate God's enemies. There's a distinction there. Just like Scripture tells us to turn the other cheek, we can get into the exegesis of that, exactly what it means, but there are lines here. There are different categories, and it is important to keep them clear. For instance, if you are persecuted on the basis of your faith, you are to bear up under that persecution. That is a trial and it is your duty to withstand that trial, to suffer for the gospel, to bear your cross. However, in the political realm, if you have people invading your country and causing problems, that's a political question. That's an entirely different matter. You're not turning the other cheek there, because there you have duties, particularly as a man, to defend your family and your nation. When it comes to personal enemies, you really shouldn't have a personal enemy. I've said before, I don't have any personal enemies. I absolutely mean that. I don't have anyone I consider a personal enemy. However, 
you most certainly do have enemies as a Christian. The world is your enemy. Satan is your enemy. The fallen flesh is your enemy. Those who stand against God are your enemy. And that is right, and you are to hate them. In the words of Scripture, you are to have a perfect hatred for them. I think probably the best example of that in this case is learning about this is what we'll probably wind up with here, the trial of the Talmud or the disputation of Paris under King Louis IX in 1240 when a former Jew named Nicholas Donan came forward and said, I used to be a Jew, now I'm a Christian. Let me tell you what's in the Talmud. And effectively, the response from from Louis, I should have said Louis, not Louis, King Louis, and and the other people even in the church was, so what's the Talmud? We like they they knew that it existed and they knew that it was interpretive of the Tanakh of of the Old Testament, but they didn't know its contents. And so what happened was this man put forth 35 separate elements of the Talmud and said, this is blasphemous, this is evil, this is what these people are teaching in their synagogues, in secret, which incidentally is something that Chrysostom had been complaining about 900 years previously. He was no fan of synagogues because of what went on in it. And I think that's one of the the tricks that gets played when all these questions are framed in terms of so-called anti-Semitism, suddenly it just becomes something you have to flee from without even looking at what you were trying to address in the first place. Chrysostom gets called the arch-anti-Semite and the one who turned Christians against the Jews. Well, Chrysostom was honest about what they were teaching in synagogues. And then 900 years later, when Donan came forward and said before King Louis IX, here is what is going on in the Talmud, here's what these people are preaching and teaching in secret, because at the time, the Talmud only existed in Aramaic or Hebrew. I don't know which one they were using at the time, but no one read it unless they were Hebrew. So it was only because he had been raised a Jew that he was able to translate it, and he did. And that is when the real problem started, because the Christians knew that, yes, the Jews were not saved. They knew that they were of a different religion, but they believed essentially the Judeo-Christian myth. They believed that these Jews who claim the Old Testament and ignore the new, the new, they're still pretty okay people. Maybe they have some issues, but we can coexist with them. They're not an immediate threat to Christianity. What came out in the trial of the Talmud was that the contents of the Talmud itself are utter blasphemy. And they're not only utter blasphemy, but they're a direct political threat to Christians. It talks about things that are political, not simply religious matters. It says you can lie, you can cheat, you can murder a Gentile, the goyim, us. If you're not a Jew, the rules for what is legal, some of them just go away. And those were the practices that they had always held, because those are their teachings. The Talmud, and before that, the Mishnah, when it was oral and not written, said, here's what the scriptures actually teach, here's what the law actually says. And they were teaching, and to this day teach in the Talmud, that the law permits horrific abuses, and in some cases murder of Christians, and other non-Jews, just because they're not. And so as that was exposed, this was in many ways the beginning of a lot of the real problems for Jews in Europe. Now, it wasn't that there was false preaching, and it wasn't there was preaching of hatred. It was simply that a man who knew what they were preaching and saying in secret stood up and said, hey, did you know they're saying this stuff? 
And when Christians heard it, they were incensed, justifiably so. To be clear, we haven't even said some of the worst things that are in the Talmud. Maybe eventually we'll get around to an episode on some of the actual contents of those volumes. And it is, in fact, more wicked than you imagine, unless you've spent time looking into it. This is a good point. This is a good place to note. There are basically no other people on the planet who hold a grudge as well as the Jews. That is just simply a fact. That is not saying something mean or pejorative or wrong about them. They hold a grudge. They hate. It's kind of impressive. It almost it's... is because it's it's generational over centuries. The dedication still is, hate is impressive. Louis. And part of the yep. reason that they hate him, you need to have an idea of what exactly was done here. One, it was conducted in an entirely fair manner because this was held as a trial of the Talmud before the king. Four rabbis were allowed to defend the Talmud against the accusations of Donin. They failed. They did not convince the king at all. And so he ordered the copies of the Talmud to be rounded up and burned. They filled 24 carriages full of these. Now keep in mind, this is in 1240. These were all produced by hand. Painstakingly produced by hand. These were extremely expensive. The king burned in one afternoon the equivalent of the entire wealth of a major noble. That's probably about the value of what was burned. This was not a minor matter. And he basically wiped out the Talmud in Paris. Obviously, they had some hidden copies, and they had things other places, and they reproduced them, unfortunately. They still hate him to this day because of this. And another thing that is notable is where these volumes were burned. They were burned in front of Notre Dame. You may remember that not that long ago, Notre Dame caught fire. If you happened to be on social media at the time, you may remember that Jews were celebrating. They were celebrating because of this. In part, yes, because a church burned and they hate Christianity, they hate Christ, they hate the church. But it was partly because of a generational grudge held against King Louis for burning the Talmud. There are no other people on this planet who do that for that long, for a thousand years, nearly. Yeah, it's incredible. In 2020, a few people may remember that there were, as part of the, some of the, we need to destroy these statues of oppression protests, there was there were counter-protests in front of a statue of King Louis in St. Louis, in this country. There's a big, beautiful statue of him on horseback. There were people there, there were a number of Catholics there, commendably defending the statue, standing around and praying, and there were a bunch of protesters. This received worldwide attention, particularly from the Jewish press, which, while it's redundant at some point, particularly Jewish Telegraph Agency, J-Post, like all the actual Jewish-focused Jewish media outlets paid attention to this, and they all specifically mentioned the trial of the Talmud. Over 750 years after that happened, they still hate this man so much that one of the statues that's important for them to tear down is a statue of King Louis in St. Louis. 
It's a long way from France, but it's a man who kicked them in the teeth and did damage to them because it not only was there the immense destruction of wealth and the setback to them in terms of being able to spread their lies and their filth, but it exposed it because by having this very public trial, suddenly everyone knew. And this was not the last trial of the Talmud. In Barcelona, the Talmud was burned in the year 1263. The next year, Pope Clement IV decreed that any person caught with a copy in his possession be put to death. In 1299 and 1309, the Talmud was publicly burned in Paris. In 1322, by order of Pope John XXII, the Talmud was again publicly burned. In 1415, Pope Martin V ordered that all copies be destroyed. During the Spanish Inquisition in 1490, Torquemada destroyed large-scale burnings of the Talmud. So this caught on. And when a Jew tells the story, they say, oh, there was this European hatred of Jews. It was so unfair. The actual story was that for the first time since the Talmud had been written down, since it translated from the secret teachings of the Mishnah, which were orally transmitted from rabbi to rabbi, from teacher to teacher, Pharisee to Pharisee, whatever, when it became, when they shifted to the rabbinic school and they recorded the Talmud and started putting all this stuff down, it was still not until 1240 that any of it had been translated into a language that a Christian could read. So 1240 is effectively the first time that Christians had any idea what Jews had been up to for over 1,200 years. And longer than that, because frankly, when you look at the stuff in there, I believe them that the Talmud includes things that had been taught by the Pharisees in the centuries preceding Christ. Not all of them, because there were some believers among the Jews in that day. So there were indeed Christians who were believing the scripture and not believing the Talmud. In fact, this man himself was one of them. The The story of his life was that he believed the Old Testament and he rejected the Talmud, and that's how he ended up getting excommunicated from his Jewish community and ended up becoming Christian sometime later. Or maybe he was Christian first, but in any event, he was convinced not only by the veracity of the Tanakh, but by the evil of the Talmud, that Christianity had to be the true religion. He came to faith by despising what was written in the Talmud. And so for him, it was a matter of conscience to tell other Christians, here's what's in this thing. And I I think that's why I think that's such a perfect microcosm of this whole question. When we talk about Jews, what's going on? Is it people spreading lies and hatred? Or is it people telling the truth and then Christians having a righteous response to evil? It has nothing to do with their genetics as far as we're concerned. I don't care who they are or what they are. I care about evil. And if I find that wherever I see evil in my own society, I can dig for not more than 30 seconds and find Jews behind it when we're told they're only 2% of the population, at some point that matters to Christians. I hate evil. God commands me to hate evil. God is in my heart. I hate evil. It's got nothing to do with the people who are perpetrating it. Corey and I have both been personal victims of tremendous evil just in the last couple months. I don't bear a grudge against any of the men who participated in doxing me or any of the other harmful things that they've attempted to do. I don't bear a grudge. I pity them. And I ask God, for my sake, not to punish them. They're unrepentant. They're, they hate God with all their hearts. They're going to burn in hell. Because regardless of what I do to seek God to forgive them for their sins against me, 
They hate him. And God will sort that out in his time. So men like Corey and me who are Christians, when we are actual victims of actual persecution, we don't need to bear a grudge because we know the vengeance is God's. He's going to do a more perfect job of causing vengeance than we could ever imagine. I'm not going to sit around thinking about vengeance because I don't need to. God will take care of it perfectly. And if that means that, you know, by some miracle, these men come to faith and become Christians, in some case, again, thank God, I'd love to see him in heaven. And hopefully we can laugh about how stupid it was that they would try to dox and murder someone for a podcast, because it is really stupid. It's just, it's sad. But I'm not mad about it. It's, that is a Christian response. These people have a different response. Someone tells the truth about them, and it's centuries and millennia of murder. That's a spiritual fruit. And to go back to what we were saying earlier on, the quotes from Jesus, John 8, 44, Revelation 2, 9, Revelation 3, 9, these are the synagogue of Satan. They're the congregation of Satan. They're Satan's children, particularly. This isn't something that was said of the Greeks in, in that day who were pagans or the Romans who were pagans. They were worshiping demons as well. And yet they were not called children of Satan by God's prophet, by Paul, or by Jesus himself. It was specifically the Jews who were called the children of Satan. And so for 3,500 years, we have them practicing black magic and worshiping demons, intermittently in some cases, and some have repented and become Christian. Again, it's just as we talked last week about how salvation does not come through DNA, it comes through faith. The opposite is also true. Although a generational curse was called down by those Jews upon every Jew since then, anyone who is covered in the blood of Christ in righteousness and forgiveness, their sins are wiped away. They cease to be a Jew and they have access to salvation by God's mercy. That's what I wish for everyone. These are such stupid things for people to go to hell for, and they will, and they do. That's, that's terrible. Being mad at a dead king from France and burning in hell because of your hatred, what a stupid thing. What a stupid thing. What a hopelessly foolish thing. My response is just, well, I would beg them to stop, but I know they won't because that's, that's the point. They've been doing it for thousands of years. They're not going to stop. So we as Christians, when we have these people in our lands, have to find Christian ways of dealing with evil. That's part of why we focused in some cases on talking about things like Christian nationalism, about the fact that individuals like Corey and I have no duty, we have no vocation to fix these problems. We do have a vocation to tell the truth about them, to tell the truth about everything. You know, it's not, it's not like we just want to talk about black people or Jews or DNA or whatever. That's, I, I, I find these topics tedious. But at the same time, they're important because they're forbidden. And when something is forbidden, and it's forbidden against Christians when it's true, that's where the investigation needs to be kicked off. It's not for the sake of the titillating factor of some forbidden knowledge. Like, this is not occult knowledge. It's simply people are up to no good. Christians need to know about that in our lives, in our communities, and in, as they're influencing us. If you know that every drop of media that you consume has been created by people who hate God and hate you and want you destroyed, maybe it change your, changes some of your consumer habits. That's salutary. That's it. As far as what a prince does, a godly prince, that's neither of us. That's not our problem. That's not our purview. But telling other Christians to beware of evil is every Christian's duty. 
And a Christian who fails to warn another Christian about evil is failing to be Christian. It's got nothing to do with name-calling or hatred or anything else. It's saying, if there's evil in your midst, beware and deal with it in a Christian way. I want to emphasize that point about relative percentages. If you are dealing with a population, let's say it's made up of two different groups, A and B, and you have some bad thing that happens at a rate of 10% in your population, if 5% is from group A and 5% is from group B, you don't need to look at either group specifically. You look at the problem and try to address the problem, the root causes, whatever they happen to be. If, in the alternative, 90% of that 10% problem occurs with group A, it is warranted to take a particular look at group A and what group A is doing with its time, why you have this problem in this particular group. An example of this would be, in the U.S., according to NIH data, 60 to 75 percent of new HIV cases every year are amongst homosexual men, amongst sodomites. You should probably look at that because they are less than 10 percent significantly less than 10% in the older generations. There are some very real problems with the younger generations, although there are some self-reporting errors, but they are significantly less than 10% of the population. They should not be three-quarters of those who are diagnosed with this particular disease, except, of course, we know that it is due to their behavior. And so it is warranted to look at the behavior of that group and see why, in this case, this particular consequence of a particular kind of sin is affecting them. When it comes to the Jews, as was mentioned, they are about 2% of the U.S. population. Depends where you are, they congregate in various areas. I could name them, but most likely you know them. If you find them at the root of almost every problem, major societal problem we have been discussing so far, if you find them at the root of the so-called Civil Rights Act, if you find them at the root of feminism, if you find them at the root of abolitionism, if you find them at the root of atheism, if you find them at the root of all of the court attempts to remove God from our public life, if you find them in the cases that legalized abortion and homosexual marriage so-called, and all of these various other things, and they're 2% of the population, it is warranted to look more closely at what they are doing. That's akin to what happened in the disputation of Paris. Donin came to the king, obviously came to someone under the king first, you don't just walk up to the king, but Donin got this information to the king about what the Jews were doing. And so given the information about what was going on, it was warranted for him as a Christian, particularly as a Christian ruler, to investigate what was happening. All we're doing in this episode and so many others is looking at the facts through a Christian lens, comparing what we see in the world to what we see in Scripture, what Scripture commands us to do, and what we as a people are doing, what we as a church are doing, and what others out in the world as their various groups are doing. If you find a group that is continually opposed to the church, that is continually opposed to God, 
that hates God with a hatred you probably couldn't manage to summon for your worst enemy if you happen to have a personal enemy, not to resurrect that topic again. If you keep finding the same group, they warrant additional scrutiny. And as we have demonstrated conclusively, when you look at these problems, you keep finding Jews. We're not saying it's because of their ethnicity, because of their DNA. We're not saying it's because of race. Now, there may be some predilections there that play into it, because obviously, as we went over in the episodes on race, genetics affects certain personality characteristics, certain attributes, and those do play into things. For instance, you have more neuroticism amongst the Jewish population. That's not a stereotype. I mean, it is a stereotype, but it's also just statistically true. As I've mentioned before, I used to do psychology. So I've, I have studied these things. You have certain psychological ailments that are more common in various populations. And so that does play into some of this in some ways. But when it comes to the Jews, the biggest thing is that they have maintained this particular wickedness over a course of centuries because they rejected Christ. That was the big inflection point. Yes, before that, they had all the times they were apostate and worshipped demons and sacrificed their children and hated God and God killed many of them with disease and all sorts of other things. But it was really in Pilate's courtyard that they solidified their opposition to God by rejecting Christ, by crying out for him to be crucified, and choosing Barabbas, the son of the father, because that's, of course, what Barabbas means, over the Son of Man, over the only begotten Son of God. And from that point, they have just doubled down again and again and again. When the temple was destroyed, they ran into the synagogues. Instead of having the sacrifices at the temple, because of course those were done, that prefigured Christ, with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, the animal sacrifices were done. The temple is gone. That was God's point in utterly destroying it. Well, they ran into the synagogues. And so instead, now they have rabbis who teach not so much out of Scripture as out of what their interpretation of Scripture. But one of the most famous sayings about the Talmud, and this is a saying from Jews. This is not a saying Christians created. This is one of their own sayings. What the Torah forbids, Talmud permits. That's what they've done with the Talmud. They have inverted scripture, inverted God's truth, and created a wicked, satanic religion that is explicitly, vehemently, and virulently opposed to God and his church. And they are not getting better with the centuries. Because as we have pointed out before, if you continue longitudinally, and this, this is the case for an individual life or for a nation, if you continue to worship demons, you will get worse. A man who engages in sexual sins in his youth can turn his life around. A man who does it for 50 years is very unlikely to do so. A people who worship demons for one generation can maybe turn that around. Perhaps their children turn back to the Lord God. But a people who worship demons over a course of thousands of years are very unlikely to change that behavior. And that is exactly what we see here. We can see the same pattern playing out 
over and over and over again. And apparently we as Christians learn very slowly. Or just forget our history and have to learn the lesson the hard way again. Because we're having the same problems today that Christian Europe had in the middle of the 1900s. They were having the same problems then that Europe had had earlier in the 1800s. They were having the same problems then that Europe had had in centuries past. And they were having the same problems then that the Roman Empire had had. And, they were ha and it just keeps going. We don't have to repeat history. We don't have to learn the same lesson over and over and over again. If you have a low-hanging part of your ceiling in your house, how many times do you have to smack your head before you learn to duck? As Christians, we are told to be wise. We're not told to be foolish anywhere. Being foolish is wrongful. Being foolish can be a sin. Don't be a fool. We are told to be wise. We have all this information at our disposal. Nothing we have said in this episode is particularly difficult to find. None of it is going to be difficult to verify. Yes, it takes some effort and some background knowledge in order to synthesize the material. But it's all out there. This is not hidden. This is We're not in the position of King Louis where a random former Jew comes to us and says, Oh, by the way, we have access to the, these materials. The Talmud is online in English. And it is actually a translation of the Talmud. It, they didn't play games with it. In places, it says that raping children is fine if they're under a certain age. It says that Christ is boiling an excrement. These are the kinds of things that are in there. And again, we as Christians are called to be wise because we have to protect ourselves, our families, our nation, and the church. Many of these problems have been allowed to fester for too long, and that is why we address these. It is the duty of Christian rulers to do what the Spanish did, to drive out the pagans and then to exile the pagans who will not convert. It is the duty of Christians in the church, not just pastors, not just bishops, but laymen as well, because fathers and men have duties as well in the church. It is the duty of men in the church to see that right doctrine is taught and that Christians understand these extremely salient issues. Because in the church itself, in the kingdom of the right hand, yes, it is sufficient to know right doctrine, to know the scriptures, not to believe false doctrine. But you don't exist just in the kingdom of the right hand. You also exist in the kingdom of the left hand. You have to enact, interact in your daily life with others. You interact with the world. It is important as a Christian to know how you are to conduct yourself in both kingdoms. And is the duty of men, particularly of fathers and pastors and rulers, anyone in a position of authority, that authority having been granted by God, it is the duty of those men to address these problems. And Christians have neglected them for far too long.